Okay, so I'm going to say welcome to everybody who signed in. Uh, it looks like we've got lots of people signed in and ready to hear this conversation. Uh, my name is Lisa Anderson. I am a curator, I'm an arts advisor, and I'm the founder of Black British Art. That's an Instagram platform promoting uh, art from the African diaspora in the UK. Um, I'm a lover of art generally, especially from the wider African diaspora as well. And it is my supreme pleasure to be holding space for this important conversation with three phenomenal artists um, from Africa, from the continent, and from the African diaspora. So tonight we have with us uh, Shayla Chukwulozi, uh, live from Lagos, looking spectacular with a, um, a headpiece from Mauritania, very beautiful and a gorgeous fan, making us all jealous, just looking elegant. Um, we have Jalili Atiku, legendary performance artist, again, live from Lagos, from his family home. And then we have the amazing Adelaide Damois, um, from live from London. And the reason that we're assembling tonight is to have a really important conversation on performance art, but performance art in the time of protest and pandemic. Uh, and when I was approached to uh, host and you know, facilitate this conversation, it struck me just how important it is for us to expand our understanding of the power of performance art. I think in the time of the pandemic, we have as a community of people across the whole world been more aware of our own bodies and the role it plays in negotiating different circumstances than ever before. And for me, uh, life is performance, particularly for being a um, black British of Jamaican heritage woman uh, with a heritage of celebrating carnival, being someone who loves to dance and react to art. I'm very aware that the pandemic has kind of been like this weird spectacle, this weird theater of uh, a dystopian life. Um, and we've all been put into a position of performing our own survival and negotiating, you know, our reactions to the government um, the, and, the, and the line about how, how we should be um, managing this new ever-changing reality we're in. So I want to start with a question to my artists. And that is, although ephemeral, do you think the conditions of the pandemic, uh, the restrictions of movement, the drive of people to the internet, the increasing disparities between rich and poor has undermined or enhanced the power of performance art. And I before, wait for it. <laughs> and I say this because a lot of your work, particularly for Jalili, for example, is really grounded in that liveness, um, the ability to interact with the audience. Um, if you are not familiar with Jalili's practice, please get to Googling because he has um, enacted some spectacular um, work across the years. And so Jalili, perhaps you could be the first to, 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 to respond to that question. Do you think it's undermined or enhanced the power of performance art in your experience? 
Yeah, well, I, I will just take it from this perspective. Let's look at it from this perspective, fact that performers do use body as a material. Mm. One thing that this pandemic uh, condoned with is to project the body as an enemy. And I know to project the body as the things that need to be isolated. And that's why we have the lockdown. We have a lot of things that keep the body in indoor. But performance is, is more about performing. It's like the body itself, is, since it's a material, could be invisible body. Yeah. And so, of course, it's affected it in a lot of way. But sometimes you also want to know that some of us go online to perform and, and project through online performance. And the body is restricted into seclusion and a lot of things is done in that isolation, right? And because it is not like a dead material, it's not a material that like oil or all other materials that you can cause. So being an organic car that also respond to the environment, it doesn't mean that totally it is collapsed. No. Well, of course it's affected, but like mine, it's affected it because I couldn't go into the public space because the public space is also being seen as enemy of the people where mm. the carrier of the disease. So, but, but that does not. Like for example, I did about, um, I participated in the in Afrofrat um, festival while I'm in Nigeria here, where I have to do a performance that has to do with investigating the body using the indigenous techniques in, in fortify the body, you know? So you see how I, I was able to navigate it. But of course, mm -hmm. it was a traumatized situation where the body itself was traumatized. And in itself, it's a performance. So, and I love that. So you have embraced it. I mean, what I have picked up from reading your responses to interviews is that you are diehard, literally, performance artists. It's your life, it's your breath. Yes. So what I hear from that is that you've embraced the restrictions and are using it as best you can to still engage with and, and yes, communicate the protest that, that charges your, your work. Yeah, because performance is about life. It's just it's life. Since human bodies involved and we are actively involved, there is no way you can push the reality away. You have to, you have to conform and use the, the reality also as an element in the performance. Of course. What is the last live performance that you did? From what I can see, it was before the lockdown. Yeah, well, I have done series of, of, of live performance because I told you that I, I, I produced a film that is performance-based and they were done live. The element, the, most of the performances, about 14 of them were done live, but just with restrictions of people coming to say, no, you can't go closer because of- Ah, I see. But we're done in the public space. They were all done in the public space. And did you feel the impact of that? How was the impact for the audiences changed? What was the response? How was that mitigated yeah, by the, the, the impact is, you can, you can see that the, the, the audience are timid are also afraid of coming closer because the psychic of the people is, the, 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 the space has becoming contaminated with disease and you have to be careful. You have to, you have to be cautious. You have to, so a lot of them, you can see a lot of them with masks and, and being at a far distance and looking mm. at what you see 
unlike before where they literally come into the performance and become element into that. But they have to be part of way. And that is the essence of being distance. You know, the feelings of being distance. And that has to show in the performance because performers do a lot with the feelings of the audience. Mm. Sheila, I want to bring you in here because I was really intrigued by the way you described your interest in the body as a machine and being interested in the opportunity to reprogram the way the body reacts to certain circumstances um, through your performance art, through the research that um, kind of helps you conceive of these performances and then your engagement with audiences through your art. So can you say something about how whether you see this as an opportunity, this, this space that um, the pandemic has created for reflection, even though, even though it may be experienced uh, negatively in terms of a sense of isolation and alienation from oneself, yet let alone from society, mm -hmm. has that, do you think, created quite a fertile space for innovation and, and reprogramming? Um, I really, really just, first of all, I want to thank Jalili um, for speaking and I want to thank you for saying that you have to in performance you have to use reality as an element of performance because I take that seriously because um, I always tell my actors because I direct theatre and I also choreograph so I'm I work a lot with like bodies who know about the stage but also I work a lot with bodies who don't know about being on the stage but have ideas of what it means to be on the stage so like first time as inviting like regular street people for workshops and stuff like that and I think I always ask them first of all like what do you think acting is and a lot of people start with you know I think acting is pretending or trying to be something and I always have to go back to this quote which I saw but I don't remember from who that was saying you know acting is is being true in conditions or circumstances that are not your current reality. So it's basically taking someone's reality and using your own self as best as you can to sort of like fill the parameters and parameters of someone's life. So not lying, not pretending that you are in fact what you're not, but sort of like seeing in your life, if let's say you're supposed to be handicapped, um, and you're not, what in your life emotionally makes you feel handicapped? What makes you feel like you are outside um, a normal, the, the circle of people that people will think of as normal? What is the thing that makes you feel like you are defective in some way? And how can you bring that in to doing, because the most important thing for my performance is actually dignity. I'm so interested in dignity because I think growing up in Nigeria, the first thing I learned was about respect. But there were so many um, labels of what to respect. And then I would see the person carrying a label that was not worthy of my respect. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I just can't, because you're older than me, I can't give you respect because what you're saying doesn't make much sense right now. But like, I think with the culture, it's if this person is older, automatically they are more intelligent. And I found that there was a way in which that was reducing what I came to the world to bring, because I believe that children are people who like are very, they're, they're coming from the source. They, they've been sleeping a long time. So they're coming, this is my, my own story. Um, they're coming from the source. So 
they usually come to answer the desires of the people that bring them into the earth. So you asked a question. I came in to give you a response and you're telling me I shouldn't talk to you because you're my parents and I'm a child. So what are we, what is this relationship that you ignited um, during the climax? Like what, what is that? So I think in a way that I also saw that, that those labels of respect were making people stagnant because as much as some respect promises to lift people up onto a, a sort of pedestal, but sometimes when people already assume who you are, they don't take the time to find out what you're going through, what makes you, even if you are someone in that label, there's probably something about your lived existence that complicates what I think from my perspective. So I really had to break down those sort of like walls of respect so I could go into dignity by saying, I respect you for being on this earth alone and surviving as long as you have. And as much as you have something to tell me that I need to learn, I have something to tell you that you need to learn because at least you know about a life that is not yours. And so I think that like the pandemic um, has actually, what it's done is that it's just reduced the scale, like the, the, the quantity of people that I need to learn about. It makes it that my immediate locus, like my, what is most local to me, being my new plants, my mother, my sister, my nephew, my niece, those become my primary audience. They become my primary sponsors. They become my performers as well. Um, they become my troop. So it's just about what is the cost of reducing the scale of my stage? What is the cost of sort of like saying, I don't have the pedestal of performing for an audience that would be like, oh, that was amazing. Oh, that because sometimes I go to perform for my nephew and he's just like, get the hell out of me like i'm not in your mood even if you don't do you can just sense the irritation um in his voice so how do i take the reality or the feedback that a child who is two doesn't always want to play and he knows what he wants like more than i know what he wants sometimes so yeah that's lovely uh i love the idea of you um using your family and your plants as your primary audience right now and i'm intrigued to know what you've discovered from that reduction of scale? What has come from that? The first thing I think that has come from that is that um, the performer's ego is always alive. I think sometimes I, I try so hard to think that once I cross this part of my training, I will no longer have an ego. I will completely be dissolved of any pride or I will not, not even know that people are watching me because the way that I like to perform, a lot of my performances now in recent years have been improvisational. Okay. I started very choreographic um, where I was the dancer or maybe even the choreographer. Mm -hmm. But I got into this stage. Um, first of all, I slipped a disc in my spine. Mm -hmm. And so that made me very, I didn't know how scared that made me of, of putting myself forth to be directed because I think on a certain level, I was afraid that either I, I will be too strained and I won't be able to not do, I won't want to say I didn't want to do something for fear of like, for fear of being seen as incompetent. Like I didn't want the director to think that I was just being stubborn or I was being incompetent. Okay. So I kind of stayed back on my own and I was about to do my thesis and I, was, um, I had an advisor. So I was telling him that I started having these dreams of, of 
being in a car and looking down and not having any limbs anymore. And it really scared me about, and I think it was about my um, chronic fear of making a performance that sort of like explains my whole, because I think college was my time to really explore and sort of like explode as a performer. Mm. So I felt so much pressure about this time. And so he said, how do we make a performance that heals you instead of harms you? Uh. And I think that simple line was very powerful for me because as a performer, I want to like break myself. I think it actually adds to what I learn about my body because, and I think that's also part of where my Catholic upbringing comes in because I think with, with, with Catholicism, there's this thing called mortification almost, which is you yeah. do something that brings you pain so that you can one, connect with the pain of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also so that it can teach you something about like, resourcefulness almost mm. not having enough therefore being humble enough to 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 be god that you have anything at all so i like i really enjoy the idea that oh there goes my pelvis or there goes my like left toe but being in this state where he was like you try to make sure you heal yourself more than you harm yourself i found a lot of it in improvisation um so i think being with my, my, my nephew and my niece and performing with them and for them allowed me to also throw away more of my choreographic tendencies because mm. you have like kids and you want to do something, but they want to do something else because they're noticing the orange on your head or they're noticing like, I don't know, the ants on the ground. And it takes, so, it takes much more energy to divert them back to the thing you planned than to actually go with them to the place that they're taking you. So I think it just took me further and further into the like, the perspective of, I have so much to figure out. And if I depend, or if I ignore the fact that I have an ego, I will not do the work I need to do to break through the ego. I've got it. So this is exciting. You're humbled uh, and it feels as though you are, are more present and I feel expanded artists through this experience. But one key word that you said that I think is, is really key, um, particularly as we're all artists, artists, lovers of the African diaspora is dignity. And I, and I don't think anybody will argue with the fact that the last 12 months has seen our dignity uh, as an African diaspora take a huge, um blow um politically on all the levels physically and everything else so i want to now direct this to this question to adelaide um and and question how has your experience of your own dignity in terms of the way the pandemic has affected your um your own body um kind of impacted your relationship with your performance practice God. Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. Well, in the first place, I found that uh, the, the pandemic has, has directly impacted my body in that it's changed my body, I feel, because um, last year when the thing first hit, um, if you remember, we uh, just before we were in Morocco in February for mm -hmm. a performance, um, and then we came back and in March, then the pandemic hit. 
But what I hadn't realized during that time was that I think I picked something up in New York in January um, and I was coughing throughout January, felt better in February. And then in March, I was coughing again. Um, and I had all of the symptoms uh, that they were reporting with regards to coronavirus, particularly cough, the, the, um, the chest pain, the cold sweats, the whole thing. And that, that was going for eight weeks. And so I had eight weeks of being kind of incapacitated and being um, at the mercy of my own body. Um, and, at, and at the same time during this process, um, my endometriosis, so I have a chronic condition called endometriosis, which is a condition that affects the womb. And during that time, I don't know if it is as a consequence of the infection because there are kind of autoimmune things that are linked to endo, but uh, it got worse and it has continued to get worse month on month since last March. Um, and what's interesting for me with all of that is that in the performances, in all of my performances, it doesn't matter what subject I'm tackling, whether I'm looking at colonialism or feminism or spirituality, it doesn't matter which of those areas I'm investigating, all of the time in every single performance, my body is present, right? Mm -hmm. um, and my body is the jump off point from which I start to explore all of these all of these issues. And in that, because of my medical history, there is always in every single performance, there is always a reclamation of my own power through my body. Um, and in that process, there's, there's like a, there's like a, a self-empowerment that happens in every single performance that I do. Like mm -hmm. I say, regardless of the thing that I'm investigating. Um, and, and that has felt amazing over these last few years mm. in the performances that I've been doing. And it's built my confidence as a performance artist, as a woman, and as a woman who's dealing constantly, battling with this condition. Um, and so um, during the, the, the whole course of this time of this past year and having to really sit with my own body, I mean, I live on my own. Um, so I've spent a lot of time the majority of the time actually by myself, uh, aside from my, my family that I have in here, which is my plants. Um, <laughs> so having to sit with that and meditate on that um, and accept the state that my body is in right now and think about how that's going to impact future performances. Mm. And, um, and so I did have one performance over lockdown, uh, not over lockdown, but after the, the very first lockdown. In August, which was to close my solo exhibition then. And um, if you remember at the time when I did that performance initially, when um, the gallery, which is Boogie Wall Gallery in Mayfair, and Josephina, who is the director, asked me to do a performance to, to close that exhibition, I didn't really want to do it. And the reason why I didn't want to do it was because my body was different. My body had been impacted by um, the pandemic. Um, and whether or not I was, I actually had the coronavirus, it also been impacted by the endometriosis getting worse. My physical body had changed because of this time of not being as active as I was before. Before the pandemic hit, I was in different countries all the time. I was active exercising and the weight was under control. But now we're in a situation where I'd been sick for that whole time. I'd put on weight. I wasn't comfortable with the way that my body was looking or feeling. And then thinking about doing a performance, which usually involves my whole body. So I don't, I don't think I did it consciously, 
I don't think it was a conscious decision to do what I did in terms of adapting the performance so that it wasn't my body that was the focus. This time I used my voice. So my body was obviously present, but mm. there was no movement in the same way as say, for example, the Blue Eve Climb performance or the Into the Mind of the Colonizer performance. It was just my body in the space with the audience around a small audience, much smaller audience that I'm used to, than I'm used to, like 13 people because of the, um, the coronavirus restrictions, everybody wearing masks. So there's a level of intimacy that's removed as well because of that. Um, but then again, there's still, a, there's, there's another layer of intimacy because of the smallness of the crowd and the smallness of the room. But instead of um, my, my body being the locus, the central point of the performance, it was my voice. So I stood there and I, I performed a poem that I had written, which was really thinking about everything that the world went through in the last few months, as, from George Floyd to the coronavirus, to what I went through personally, but turned it into a story which is filled with myths from Greek mythology to my own mythology, that I, I, to my own myths and stories that I made up to really kind of deal with and think about um, all of that. And that was very healing and cathartic for me as an experience. Um, so yeah, I would say that um, this, this whole experience has changed my relationship to my body and, in, in, and how I think about it in terms of my body taking up space with regards to uh, my performance practice. Thank you for that. And um, thank you for bringing up so beautifully the healing power of performance art, which I think is a thread that runs really powerfully through the practice of all of these artists. Um, Janili, I want to bring it back to you. Uh, and particularly your invocation of Yoruba symbols, uh, spirituality in a lot of the healing messages that comes through your work. Um, and I also want to raise that given the fact that this is a very global audience. I have no idea. There's 109 participants right now dialing in from all over the world uh, with different levels of understanding for the Yoruba uh, tradition. I, I'm interested in how you um, think about uh, using that grounding to have that healing impact on your audience, particularly in the context of the pandemic. So really I'm talking about digitally. Have you thought about the challenges of that? Yes, of course I, I have. But you know, most of the time we struggle with this uh, problem of, um, of understanding how people we must have to concern ourselves about how the British person understands somebody from Africa or the Asian people understand it from somebody from Africa. But I, but a lot of time we, on the, we, we, we tend to forget we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And there is a general language that speaks throughout humanity. The Yoruba tradition, the Yoruba philosophy is based on nature, purely nature and purely natural environment, things that are around you, that speak with you. We are no longer in, in forest, in, in Nigeria, for example. We are in a global society. So there is nothing like a Yoruba as in, in, in the real sense, because most of the things we do, I speak English. English is not my language. So it means that I am a global being by that language. So you should also understand that each time I perform, 
that will be reflection in my work. But aside from that, Yoruba is a kind of a, a people that understand that as a human, you are constantly in dialogue with the nature. Mm -hmm. And they understand deeply the ability to collaborate with nature for healing. The ab ability to, 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 to understand and bring the um, uh, efficacies from nature into their own body for healing. And that's exactly what my performances have been throughout this pandemic in for us to go back into the nature. It is only nature that has the ability to heal our body because nature has a lot of potency that, that fortify our body against any kind of, any kind of ailments. And suddenly we are weakening it every day because of things that are chemical that we put into, into the body. So it, it's just a natural thing that I, I borrow heavily from my, from my nature, from my culture, because it gives me the ability to understand my society, the ability to understand my audience more deeply without biasness. Because my culture let me understand that my audience is as wise as I am. Because mm -hmm. they went through a lot of experiences and have, 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 uh, have a contact with a lot of imagery. Mm -hmm. And this image has formed their own experiences. And in that, when I want to um, construct my imagery, I have to also understand my audience very deeply. Not to take them for, 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 for granted that they don't understand things. Because every human being has peculiar experiences. And when I do a performance, open up a dialogue, I need to understand the element that I want to push out for them to be part of the, of the discourses. Because performances, whether you understand or not, open up discourses in the mind of the beholder. Because mm -hmm. the color, the forms, and even your body that is put into it, it's, it's divine moments memory, objects, idea in the mind of the audience. And you have to tap into that when you are, we are performing. It is important. It's except if you don't tap into that, then you'll be blabbing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about your process? I'm really intrigued about how you have been surviving in the midst of all of this, all of you in your different contexts and what your own rituals of uh, excavation, archiving of ideas might have been to kind of ready you, you for the, the next phase of opportunity to, to be live without restrictions in your performance arts. Uh, Julie, you can start if you like. Are you still expecting me to talk? <laughs> There's no expectation actually. Whoever yeah. would like to respond to that one, go for it. But of, of course, you, you, know, you know, one thing will take granted of, of course, it's just like, for example, my community has memory. Mm -hmm. My society has memory. And I'm not just living as an islander where I don't have connections with them. And so it, it is natural that you need to tap into the memory of the community you live in. Mm. And you, you, it is only the, the Western world who expects you when you are coming from Africa to use their own memory alone. And, 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 and sometimes it, 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 it sounds some, some, somehow absurd to me when you expect me to borrow from, from, from experiences of the, of the Europeans. 
where I live in Lagos. During the pandemic, it was horrible for us living in this kind of society. The, the security broke down, everything collapsed, and you, you, it was really traumatic to, to survive. Mm. And the little amount you have as an artist, you have to begin to give people. And suddenly you broke, and suddenly you find it difficult to survive. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and suddenly your body becomes the only element you got to protect it. Yeah. And, and, and as such, you, there's nothing you can do. And, and another thing, and um, the, the SARS protests begin. So it was like kind of a confusion where you don't need to trust nobody. So these are the experiences it has a memory. Oh, you're frozen. Ah, you're in your, oh, he's in flow and he's frozen. Okay, we'll hold that thought. Um, Sheila, I'm really keen for you to pick up on that because you did mention SARS um, and the context of, of being in Lagos in the midst of the uprising and the horror of the, the, the brutality that was put upon those protesters. Um, can you say a little bit about that in terms of how you have uh, been, yeah, how you have been protecting your practice in the midst of that, but also he spoke to the, to the importance of connecting with other artists and connecting with communities and potentially collaborations that were helping to fuel the development of your, your practice. Before I in get that context. to the NSAS thing, I mean, I was nodding my head to everything you were saying, but when he talked about how um, the West expects that we use their memory to live our day-to-day -day lives, I laughed so hard because I think it's so funny. Um, it's like when a child s says to you, like, says something to you, like, give me this, and then you say, no, like my nephew would say, give me this, and I'll say no. And then he looks at me and then he growls like a lion because he thinks that like, but, like he thinks he's a lion. So if yeah. I become scared, I'll give him the thing. And I'm like, no, you twats, like you're not a lion, you're a human being. And sometimes I think about it with like the West to other countries is that like you stand where you are and you, you think that you are God. Like you, you think that you're a lion, that actually you will breathe and then the world will sort of like fall in the way that you've set the dominoes. And I'm like, do you understand that that's not how things work? I mean, the example I have is, I remember when I was taking a course, I was taking a business school course with a really, really good um, school, like a really top tier school. And then the day that we're supposed to have a really big exam, there was a false scarcity because it was a man-made false scarcity. What had happened was that the government had refused to pay the marketers. So the oil was on the water, but it just refused to cross over until the government paid them. But it was getting so bad that companies shut down. Um, so people weren't working. There was massive traffic because of the, once there's a false scarcity, there's always traffic because of like lining up at filling stations. Yep, yep. The cafe I go to, their generator wasn't working because there was a false scarcity. And then I had malaria that week as well. So I emailed them and I said, hey, I didn't think that I'd be able to take this exam because all this, I listed all the things that were happening and I'm also sick. And then they got back to me and they said, well, since you say you're sick, we'll move it. <laughs> and you know, what was so hilarious to me was that they saw everything I had listed, but of course their brain can compute the reality of having a society where 
first of all, there's no electricity. What is that? Second of all, like you're telling me that there's no fuel in the whole country where like oil and petrol is produced. What is that? It's so fantastical that it must be a lie, which is why like as a writer as well, because I write for my practice. Mm -hmm. As a writer, we always have this joke that um, editors say, you know, it's, um, it's, not, it's, it's, um, it's not realistic enough. And we're like, no, 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 this is our reality. What you people are calling magical realism is actually my real life. I don't know how many people here in um, her eyes, the show on Netflix that has like people traveling from their dreams. I was just talking to a friend of mine and I was like, this isn't science fiction, this is documentary. Like, this is my life. Like, I feel like I know people who fly out of their sleep in real life. It's hard to speak that and like have a conversation with someone in another land, like let's say in London or in where I'm saying, oh guys, I have to go back early because there's someone that can fly into my dreams past seven. So I have to, it sounds dumb, right? But I think that's also the thing about tapping into the memory of the community sometimes is, and especially being on the ground of the community that has that memory. So that the, because sometimes by the time the memory travels and gets to you when you're on the other side, it still has to be served on the sort of like plate of logic of that environment. Because as well, people don't want to feel, community is so important, but the risk of being so detached um, is, is very scary because then your community doesn't feel they can trust you because they can't trust your logic. You're close to being crazy. And if you're crazy, you're a ticking time bomb. They can't trust you around their kids. They can't trust you around their like, their, 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 their things. But if you're here with the memory, even if let's say you bring up the topic of flying in their dreams, but then you remind someone of an experience or you're having a conversation and someone says, oh, people fly in their dreams. And someone then says, that's not true. But then someone will say, actually, my grandmother told me of one person in her. So there's more of an opportunity or there has been more of an opportunity for stories to pop up. And most importantly, contradict what seemed to be uncontradictable logic, which is that Western scholarship of like, and it's Western time as well, because um, one of my projects that I'm working on is using Chinua Achebe's book, Arrow of God. Mm. I'm sort of compiling the proverbs from there because we are, my collaborative partner Uzoma Oji and I, what we're trying to see is time and timelessness because for us proverbs are these small verbal technology, linguistic technology, where it says the only way that you can truly account for time is by acknowledging that it is timeless, which is why the thing mm. was useful to someone in the 11th century will always be useful to you. Even if you want to deny it, if this moon doesn't come out at this time, nothing good happens there. And you can search that most of the time, anytime this moon has come out, historically some shit has gone down. But that's where the work is, is because you now have to sort of like tag your hypothesis to like um, real world things that have happened, not necessarily to even prove to others, but to prove to yourself that you're not crazy. Because I find that the work of my, me as a performer, 90% of my work as a performer is proving to myself that I'm not mad. Hmm. Which is part of where the pandemic has been useful for me because it's put me in myself. It's made me the most important audience member that I can have. And it's also made me aware of what shouts at me 
when I'm not being praised. Hey, I love that, that, that you've got that confidence and clarity in thought um, and developing your own language through the space that the, the pandemic has, has afforded you. Um, Adelaide, I'm going to ask you to rip off that because I know that you also have your own thesis on time that comes through your performance, most recently through the last performance that you, you created for the Boogie Wall Gallery. Um, can you say something bef about that uh, before I go to some of the really good questions from the, the audience? About time in, in what? I mean, because yeah, I know I've been about, there. So I think what Sheila was pointing to was the ability to create, to own her own philosophy of time <laughs> and contradict these imposed uh, ways of thinking about time that constrict the audience's appreciation and, and, and ultimately their liberation mm. through the arts. Mm right yeah. um, which is what Jalili was saying um, yeah so yeah. how does that reflect that kind of approach reflected reflected through your practice and particularly through this uh, moment of, of of reflection that the pandemic has afforded you yeah I mean it has it's uh well firstly I want to say at the core of my practice has always been the ancient Ghanaian concept of Sankofa uh, Sankofa means it is important, important to understand the past in order to not repeat the same mistakes in the present and future. In other words, looking back to look forward, right? Um, and in that, what I started to think about during the pandemic in the run-up to that performance and all of the research I was going to do, or all the research I did with regards to how I was going to enact the performance was thinking about time in, uh, in terms of linear time versus non-linear time. So linear time is the Western construct of time, which is that time is in a straight line. You've got the past, the present and the future over there. Um, and so the way that I started to think about time through all of the readings that I was doing was uh, in more in reference to uh, indigenous cultures. Uh, specifically, I um, after that performance, actually, I had a conversation with um, uh, take curator, um, who um, she's originally Australian and she was talking about the way Aboriginal cultures think about time as being this kind of circular thing where the past, present and the future all exist in the same plane. So then that got me thinking about the way that I've been thinking about, about time in terms of referencing the past and the spectres from the past. In other words, like my specific spectres relate to my ancestors um, and, uh, and then thinking about calling in or choosing um, the, the spectres from the future, in other words, choosing my own future by thinking about what's happening in the present. Because when you think about time as circular, you can be more rooted in the present, which is the point, right? The point is to be present. So you're not constrained to the past and you're not constrained to the future. You understand you can choose your future by what, by what you do, what you choose to do right now. So in, the, in terms of that specific performance, I did a literal enactment of that by um, starting off by this, with this uh, Ghanaian traditional call and return thing where it was a, 
uh, a very short ritual where I uh, called libations and I called to my ancestors in tree. I asked my ancestors to bless the proceedings. I called on specific ancestors to bless the proceedings um, and, uh, and to, to make sure that the thing that was happening right now was successful. And in, in doing that, then that is that was some kind of ritualistic way of choosing the way the thing was going to go. So mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like whether you believe in these things or not, it's still kind of like a psychological device. I felt in that moment to really project into the future the success of that performance. Um, and, and so I, I kind of feel like it, in a way, whether I do it as a part of my performance who's going forward in front of the audience or or I restrict that to um, before I, the rituals that I enact before I go and do a performance, that I will continue to do that. Um, I was kind of doing it in a non-official way before that, in that before every performance, I would fast for 24 hours. I would spend time um, in meditation, specifically reflecting upon uh, one of my ancestors who I've used time and time again in, in, in a lot of my work. Um, from my maternal line, um, but this it, this whole experience that led me up to developing that specific performance added this other element, which I felt was very important to the way that the whole thing turned out, and has continued to infect the way that I think about uh, performance uh, in in any given space or context. And do you see yourself developing this line of thought into, do you see that coming through your future performances? Definitely, my future performances, as well as my studio practice, uh, as well as the, the things that I'm, I'm developing in the, uh, the studio in, the, in terms of the individual pieces that I make, which are kind of, they feed the performances and the performances feed them, but they're separate entities at the same time. So they impact each other, they riff off each other. Thank you. Uh, I mean, we could keep on going on. We've got 10 minutes left, it's uh, 6.49, and there are quite a number of, of, of questions. Um, so I just want to pay attention to one, well, there's a series of questions from Sila Uluk. hope I've um, pronounced that correctly. And this is for you, Jalili. Um, Sila says, I was wondering what your approach is to people perceiving the body and or public space as an enemy in the context of performance. How do we negotiate the aspects of human caution that are based on complying with the suggestions made by the scientific community and the aspects of fear that exceed, that exceed are based on feeling and personal reflection? I'm not sure I understand that second part. How do we negotiate the aspects of human caution that are based on complying with the suggestions? Hmm. Do you understand that question? Of course, I, I have read it. You know, Good. the first of things that we, we we struggle with as human is prejudice against ourselves, against about every other person. Mm. And that is the main reason in most of my performances, what I do first in the process was to deconstruct my identity when you don't know who the performer is, you know? And, and that's what I borrow from, from a Google, uh, um, the sacred... Uh, a performance in Yoruba, yeah. where you don't know whether I am a black or white or red or green, then I just become an artist. 
And with that, you you'll see that most of the people will gradually begin to you know follow with you and tap into the energy that the body is emanating. Because mm -hmm. the performers create energy that transpire between the performer and the audience. And when you create that kind of action that go with, along with some certain imagery that you are creating, there is, there is a sacred um, transportation of sacred energy, which is a power that's emitted into the body of the audience. And this is something that is people will say is magical. And that is the power of the performance of healing. And in, in through some of the performances I have done in the pandemic, it's actually, like I said earlier, to direct the attention of the audience to the power of plants, the power mm -hmm. of nature, how nature has can able to heal. And that is the only power we got at the moment, not in vaccine. I know a lot of people really, um, after my the film my film was screened, there was a curator who sent a personal email uh, uh, message to me that said that my film was 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 based basically on artistic process, was not on a healing process, and I just smiled that it did not follow the process that was in the performance mm. because when you were going through performance. It go through, you go through the processes of the actions that are making you go. The body is good, taking you the journey. It's a journey. And you must, you must go through that journey with the performer sincerely, not with the biased mind, not with this colonized mind. Of, <laughs> because in a lot of time, we are battling with colonial time because of the informations we got in the body, because of a lot of informations we, we are accustomed with through the social media, right? So in the process of the performance, if you can submit yourself willingly to the process with the performance is taking you through, to the journey is taking you through, when you submit your body to that, then you'll be able to pass through the energy that the performer, that the performer is taking you through. And at the end, you will be able to go through the healing body and your body will be healed. It is just submitting yourself to it. Because a lot of people come to engage with performers with a different kind of a perspective. Some people come to enjoy themselves, looking and just be viewed there. Mm. But some people come to align their body into the processes and go through that processes with the performance. And it could be the sound that you that penetrated, penetrated into your body that will heal you. It is a healing time that performances will always push you through. It is when you submit yourself to it. You just have to be there. My goodness. You know, let, let's, let's use the word by, uh, Marina said, artist is present. Yeah. But the audience must be present also. The presence of the audience is also important mm -hmm. in everything. Psychologically, you have to be there. Even the way you express that is healing to me, Jalili. I mean, I don't know, people must be feeling the energy of that expression and that commitment to the healing power of performance. It's can making I, me want to be where your, your next performance is so that I can experience and submit myself and surrender myself to... Uh, to can to can I come to Yeah, because uh, um, if uh, a friend of mine asked, asked a question before about what is my experience performing... Under SARS. 
during yes. the SARS protest. Yes. You know, I am one of the victims of, of, of a police brutality yeah. and a police inefficiency when I, I was thrown into cell, into prison without a proper investigation. And, and because of that, it's a kind of a huge responsibility to me. And it's a kind of a nationalism to me. My body have this, this uh, responsibility to be a true Nigerian. A, a true Nigerian in the sense that we tell the system that you are not working. And I have to be a frontliner in the, during the protest. Mm -hmm. I have to lead a lot of people. And I also have to be leading the protest and also be taking responsibility that the protest we are, we are, we are leading is not hijacked by hoodlum. It is also the responsibility of my body after tell, and, and I'm a Nigerian and I'm a true Nigerian, and, and I had a, a civil responsibility to tell our leaders that you are not affected, you have failed us. And, and be political, I have to be because most of my performance are always political. It is being sincere to myself and to my practice that I'm not just borrowing from the political um, uh, experiences and not be there. I am active participant. And also don't forget, I am a political aspirant. I am a, a presidential as, uh, aspirant that I want to be president during my practice, I mean, my performance. So I was in a, a, a frontliner and that is what I be, the involvement of myself and try to let people know that I am also a victim of what we are talking about. I wanted Thanks. to. Yes, Sheila, please do respond. Thank you so much, Jalili. As everyone has said, right, Jalili for president. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're here for it. Yes, uh, 1000. <laughs> but I really wanted to respond to that question and your powerful comments about um, the question related to caution. And I think that um, caution is the antidote to expression. And I feel like, well, antidote, but the anti, not the, it's the anti to expression. Expression is the antidote to caution in a way, because there's, there's um, sometimes when you put your brain, because I won't say your mind, when you put your brain in the driver's seat, because your prefrontal cortex is like holding the microphone, it's telling you of, and most of the times it's talking back the things that you've heard. So that's why my practice is, for instance, so much about like the day that I, I realized that, oh my God, this voice that I think is the Holy Ghost is my mother. Like it's literally my mother screaming in my ear, telling me not to do. She is the voice of the moral compass. So sometimes when like I hear a very loud voice that's telling me to be afraid of something, I have to be still and know, even the Bible says it. Like I have to be still and understand what voice is speaking. Are they speaking about my fear or are they speaking about their fear? Because sometimes when I'm attending to someone else's fear that isn't really me and isn't about me, I put my destiny in jeopardy. So when you are thinking about fear and caution, sometimes you can actually be the person to orchestrate the thing that you're afraid of. It's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Like even during the pandemic, I remember one time I had a, I, I felt sick and I panicked and I took zinc and I took like two, like eight, eight, one tablet of like, but just a bigger dose. And then I was just on the floor. I had thrown up like 
12 times in total. It was bad because actually I realized after that, that zinc in my family line is a no-no. Zinc supplements do not work for us. So I think that's part of, that's also part of what you have to have the courage. And that's what I'm saying about how 90% of the work is telling yourself that you're not crazy for understanding mm. yourself the way that you do. Mm. Because you have to stand in your own truth and be like, I know that this seems to be the thing that will heal me. But me personally, what will heal me? The you that's being presented by doctors, by press, by even your friends and family, it's not complete. Because there's something about you, your own assertion of yourself that makes yourself complete. We always have this, my friend and I, we talk about um, this equation and logic that people tend to fail. It's about everybody. But when they calculate it, they never end up at the, the complete thing. Because when they think of everybody, they never add themselves. You are included in everybody. And I am included in everybody. So when I'm saying everybody says this is right or everybody says this is wrong, what do I say? Because at the end of the day, like Adelaide, you've been saying beautifully, you are your own body, you are your own machine. In the same vein that I am made by, I also make myself. So I have to sort of like compute everything because I think it is actually the confusion and the disbelief, disbelief in myself that leaves me open to viruses. And I think about virus as like a colonization of fear and greed. Mm. Other people's signals and noise of fear and greed that I, I believe because it seems louder or stronger than my own voice, which feels like a whisper. So I think that like, just to answer that question, of course, be, be, be cautious, but more than cautious, be compassionate. Be compassionate to yourself, but be compassionate to others. Like if I can afford to wear a mask because I know that the psychology of the person sitting in front of me is going to be upgraded by knowing that someone beside them is wearing a mask. Maybe I can, but what does it take from me? I have to sort of like assess what does it take from me and what does it give to you? It's always about that give and take and it, it changes context all the time. Wow. Wow. Thank you, thank you Sheila for sharing that your, your philosophy and how you're, how you've negotiated more power for yourself, you know, by owning your own voice over this, over the last 12 months. And um, I mean, it's just been an honor to, to receive, as one of the uh, audience members has said, your openness um, in sharing your personal experiences and thoughts and, and methods of, of managing uh, what we've been experiencing together as, as, as a globe. Um, and I pray that people have been inspired and empowered. And uh, I'm sure we're all ready to engage with all of your works once they become even more accessible in the live, but we'll be definitely waiting to see what you're doing in the digital realm as well. So with that, I- Lisa. The do you have one more thing to say? Please. I do, I like, I really, I've been dying to kind of, uh, what you were saying to Lily and, 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 and you also Sheila was making me really think about something that we didn't really delve into um, that much, which is, really the power of the body um, in performance as regards to the context of the performance itself and also the collapsing of the space between the work, the audience and the performer mm -hmm. and the ability of the body compared to just looking at an artwork to encourage 
uh, kind of intersubjectivity between audience uh, as in empathy, right? Mm. So especially as it pertains to the black body specifically or the body that is not heteronormative in the sense of specifically in the Western world, white and male, right? So the immediately, as soon as you put uh, uh, a black body in, in our case, for example, in a white space to do a mm. performance that is speaking to a particular theme, right? Um, then because that body is not heteronormative, all of a sudden the power becomes amplified. And then because of that, the collapsing of space between the audience and the, and the artist that happens in, uh, in the context of a performance, then you're much more able to infect the audience with whatever it is that you want to say, despite the fact despite the fact that everybody who is in the audience brings their own subjectivity to the table, right? Everybody is coming to the space from their own perspective, with their own lenses, with their own biases. However, it's still going to impact them. And the interesting thing for me in that space, in that headspace is, is the differences between um, different cultures in responding to the same performance. So you could do a performance in New York, you could do a performance in London, you can do a performance in Accra. And because of the different kind of a cultural uh, lenses that the audience is viewing the performance through, they will get something different from it. But the one thing that they will all have in common is that collapsing of space and time, which leads to more empathy and connection with the, um, the body who is doing the performance. And that is power. That's it why I love power. performance. And I'll tie that up. I mean, that's beautifully articulated. And I, and I saw everybody nodding on that. One of the um, audience members had said, do we think there's going to be an influx of interest in curating um, performance art, particularly from the African diaspora? And uh, what you've all just so powerfully demonstrated is the distinct quality that can be brought from your unique perspectives and, and how that can expand people's understanding of the power of performance. So I think yes, 100%. And, I, and I'm sure you would all welcome engagement from people from across the globe in your practice going forward. Artists need our support now more than ever, am I wrong? So um, thank you. Here's to your continued success. Thank you to everybody who's uh, participated in this. And thank you so much to 154 for enabling us to have this conversation and I hope we can continue to have it into the future. Thank you for hosting us, Lisa. I'm really lovely to meet you too. I am so in awe of you guys' work. You guys, please, we would love to see you collaborate. Oh my God, that would be a dream. That, that I would be. love to see that. It's calls for more collaboration, right? Community building. Yeah, intercontinental collaboration. Bring it on. You're quiet, but I'll curate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, so lovely. And, you know, just health and peace, prosperity, uh, and happiness to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye.